Well, I think it would be safe to say, or maybe safe to assume here, that, that most of us in this room know the importance uh, to have regular checkups, right? Regular checkups with your physician, with your, with your doctor. So uh, as, as parents, right, uh, we take our kids, and each year for their physical exam, and uh, we try to get their eyes checked with the eye doctor on a regular basis, their teeth cleaned and, and checked with uh, the dentist. We know, we know those things are important for us to do. Now, whether or not we do that personally, we ourselves, that might be another story. Typically, the younger we are, the less we go to see the doctor because, you know, we're healthy and, and it's just not something that, that's on our minds until something happens or we're just not feeling good all of a sudden. And even then, uh, we probably wait a little too long to finally go to the doctor for that checkup. That's typically been my MO. Uh, for example... I'm a glasses wearer. I've been a glasses wearer since early elementary, but at some point during my high school years, I just stopped wearing them. And as a high schooler, I just didn't like the look of them, and so I'm like, I'm just not wearing glasses anymore. Now, I'm not, I'm not completely blind without my glasses, but things aren't crystal clear either. I, I definitely need them, but, but I just didn't like the look of them, so I just stopped wearing them. For years, I mean years, even several years into my marriage, I, I, I'm not kidding you, I struggled to see clearly. Um, when we're newlyweds, right? We don't have much money. I don't want to go t- pay for, for these eye exams. I'm cheap anyways, and so I'm just like, it's not that important to me to really see that clearly. I can still see okay, right? That was, that was how I would justify my mind. I can see okay, but, but this, is, this is no lie, this is no exaggeration. When Amy and I would go on a road trip, keep in mind, this, these are even the years before GPS, right? When we had to print out MapQuest and everything was on the printed sheet and you had to look at road signs. Um, if I was unfamiliar with where we were, um, Amy would be reading out the, the street signs to me because I couldn't see them. Like, I could not read what the street signs say. So she'd have to say, okay, you're turning right at this street right here. So I'm pretty sure Amy was the, the motivating influence for me to finally call the eye doctor and make an appointment so you can actually go see something. So, so I did, and I finally got a pair of glasses for the first time in over a decade. Over a decade. I put these glasses on, and I just couldn't believe that I went so many years without them. Like, like things were clear, like seeing is a big deal, right? So, so now I'm, 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 on a, I'm on a regular schedule again, trying to take care of myself as, as we all should because I understand even though those appointments can be sometimes uncomfortable, right? Like, like any doctor visit, no matter who you're seeing, there's always just a little level of uncomfortableness that comes when you're sitting in that room, when you're waiting for them to come in. Like you're just anxious, Right? There's that slightly uncomfortable feeling that comes with them, but we go because the purpose behind them, the purpose behind those visits is that we want to be healthy. We want to remain healthy. We want to catch things that like maybe are, are, are under the radar. and We want to see things so that we can be healthy and, and have vitality in our lives. Jesus is going to administer in this text a spiritual checkup of sorts, and it's going to be uncomfortable. Because as, we've, as we're examined under the, the light, under the weightiness of God's word, under the words of Christ himself, under the actions of Jesus himself, it's going to reveal areas where we're going to need to repent. It's going to reveal areas in our lives that need to be cut out. It's going to bring to the surface areas that we're blind to, that we're not seeing in our lives right now, that need to be resolved and dealt with. 
but it's going to be done for the sake of our spiritual growth and for our spiritual vitality. And the results for those who will listen, the results for those who will repent, is, is a robust spiritual life, vitality for our souls, eternal life, joy, satisfaction. As we heard this text read this morning, as you skimmed over it, it was kind of uncomfortable, wasn't it? Like when you're, when you're hearing what Jesus is doing, like in this text, Jesus is he's cursing fig trees, he's flipping tables over, and he's driving people out of the temple. Like this little uncomfortable, wasn't it? Like that just doesn't seem like, like the Jesus we've been studying and reading and seeing throughout this whole gospel up to this point. And if we didn't know any better, we'd, we'd kind of be like, this guy needs to calm down. Like, Jesus, you need to calm it down. You need to get control over yourself. Control that anger. People have struggled with this story of Jesus for centuries. Even within the last century, scholars and theologians, they've wrestled with this text. Like, like this just doesn't seem like this is who Jesus is. So, for instance, well-known New Testament scholar T.W. Manson, he once wrote of this encounter. He said, it's a tale of miraculous power wasted in the service of ill temper, for the supernatural energy employed to blast the unfortunate tree might have been more useful, usefully expressed in forcing a crop of figs out of season. And as it stands, it is simply incredible. See, Manson saying, he's saying, instead of Jesus cursing the tree, why doesn't he just use his power to, to produce figs? Joseph Klausner, he once wrote, he says, it was a gross injustice on a tree which was guilty of no wrong. William Barclay says that this story does not seem worthy of Jesus. There seems to just be a petulance in it. And so, and so these scholars and, and others like them have rejected this story because it's just uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable to them. How could Jesus curse an innocent little fig tree? The people that struggle with this are the with the uncomfortableness of, of this story, the same ones who would struggle chapters earlier with, with Jesus' encounter with the demon-possessed man in Mark 5. You remember what happens there? A, a man is possessed with, with thousands of demons who refer to themselves as, as legion. And so Jesus casts them away, and he casts them, if you remember, into a herd of pigs. And these herd of pigs go running off of a cliff and into the sea to drown. The same critics who... Who, who, who dissect this passage and reject it, same ones who have struggled with Mark 5, all oh, these poor pigs, people exclaim, what did they do to deserve this? Why didn't Jesus just cast the demons away and leave these poor innocent pigs alone? And yet most people have no problem turning pigs into nice juicy ham or bacon. Right? And, and then when that happens and it fills our belly, ah, they fulfilled their destiny on this earth. But as Jesus does here in Mark 5, he sacrifices these pigs for the sake and salvation of this poor man's soul. And people cry out and complain. Just like Jonah cried and complained over the withering of a plant in Jonah chapter 4. God calls him to task on that and says in Jonah 4, do, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And Jonah said, yes, I do well to be angry. Angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons 
who do not know their right hand from their left. See, Jonah was whining over a, the withering of a plant that was giving him some shade from the sun. And he should have been crying out over the salvation of 120,000 plus souls in Nineveh that were heading toward eternal destruction. Here we are in Mark 11. Critics complain that Jesus is being petulant. Jesus is being childish. But see, when our focus is on the the soulless fig tree, we miss the point. Jesus uses this fig tree as this visual parable to show the barrenness, the fruitlessness, the sinfulness, the unhealthiness that was happening in Israel. See, Israel was to be this, this glorious light to the nations. We see in Isaiah 49 verse 6, God say, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Meaning as, as, they, as Israel would follow God, as Israel was called to submit to him as king, that, that, that in their glad submission to God as creator and ruler over the universe, this, this living would draw hungry nations to the Lord because they would see as this nation lived, the nation of Israel, they would see life as it was intended to be. Today, we, the church, are to be the light and hope of the gospel to the nations. Matthew 28, when Jesus is ascending to the Father, what's he say? Go make disciples of all peoples. All peoples. In Philippians 2, 14 and 15, the Apostle Paul speaks to the church and says, here's how we live. And by doing so, this, this shines. He says, do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. See, the way in which we live as the church at least the way in which we're called to live in glad submission to the reign and rule of Christ over our lives should draw hungry souls to the hope of the gospel. That we are called to live differently than the rest of the world. That greatness, as we've seen Jesus teaching in, in Mark, greatness is found through humble service and putting others first. <clears throat> that we die to ourselves, that we pick up our cross and we follow Jesus. As we see the, the New Testament letters written to the churches, we see how the church interacts and, and serves one another and loves one another and cares for one another and admonishes one another and builds up one another. We live counterculturally, showing that, that, that Christ is our greatest treasure. And as we live and as we're sent into the, into the midst of a twisted and broken generation, Paul says, you shine. You draw hungry souls to who Christ is. For to be this counter-cultural community that shows the rest of the world, this is where true joy is found. This is where eternal life is found. Glad submission to our Creator, to our Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus, the hope of all nations, of all peoples. Unfortunately, here in Mark 11, Israel is failing at this, had failed at this. And Jesus is going to call them out on it through this visual parable of the fig tree. That we must as well, as we read this text, examine ourselves as well. Are we living as Christ has called us to live as the church, as people of God, who have the Spirit of God indwelling us? Are we bearing fruit that's drawing hungry souls to Christ, who is the light and the hope of the world? Are you bearing fruit in your life that gives evidence that you are rooted in Christ, that He is the supreme treasure 
and delight of your life. See, the first thing that we see in this text today is that Jesus has really no use for those who bear no fruit. See, look at the first few verses again in in verses 12 through 14. So it says, on the following day, this is the day after Jesus had made his grand triumphal entrance into Jerusalem. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. Jesus, as we've seen, is, is the constant teacher. He's, he's, he's always teaching his disciples something. Remember how the, the text ended last week in, in Mark, uh, Mark 11, verse 11. They, they, they make their grand entrance into Jerusalem, and it's the end of the day. And they walk into the temple, and they survey the temple grounds, and then they, they leave. Like we said last week, it, it seems anticlimactic, but it, Mark is setting up. Jesus is setting up for what's about to take place in this, this day here. See, Jesus knows God's chosen people, Israel. They have, they've missed the point. They've missed him. He knows that he's going to be rejected. Now it's the next day, and they're, they're making their way from Bethany, which is where they were staying, just, as, just, just outside of Jerusalem. And they're making their way back to the temple grounds. And he sees on the path, he sees this fig tree, and he knows this is a moment to teach. This is a moment to teach my disciples, here's what's taking place in this nation of Israel, which I love. This, this moment here with the fig tree is not an act of, of anger or malice. This isn't a temper tantrum. This is a classroom. Israel is claiming to be one thing, but they're actually another. They're putting on a show, but they're really producing nothing of eternal value and significance. They're not being that light to the nations that God prophesied that they would be in Isaiah. In fact, what we're going to see soon is they're actually hindering the nations from seeing God for who he is. You see, the reason Jesus even uses a fig tree here is because a fig tree throughout the Scriptures, the Old Testament, is often used as a symbol for Israel. I'll give you one example in Hosea chapter 9, verse 10. It says, like grapes in the wilderness, I found Israel. Like the first fruit on the fig tree in its first season, I saw your fathers. This was a common symbol that, that, that the, the, the writers of the Old Testament would use to refer to Israel as, as a fig tree. And so as they're walking toward Jerusalem, he sees this fig tree in full leaf, but it was bearing no fruit, no figs whatsoever, and he knew this would would begin to perfectly portray what he was witnessing in Jerusalem at the temple, what he was witnessing within Israel at large. They had become like this barren fig tree. From the outside, they looked marvelous. The temple and its ceremonies and all its rituals were spectacular, to be sure. But, but the only thing their religious observances and their ceremonies and, and temple rituals were doing was, was just really hiding or masking the fact that they were not bearing actual fruit in their lives, which would result then in the nations coming to God. They were not being that light to the nations. In fact, they were hindering the nations from seeing God as holy. The religious leaders were not accepting Jesus as the Messiah. They were not seeking greatness through humble service. Sadly, Israel, instead of being that light, they were beginning to look just like the other nations. But what about us? What about us today? Are we arrogant enough to think that we're any different? That we've arrived, that we've got it all figured out? 
See, this is where we need to examine ourselves underneath the, the light of Scripture. Is, this the, is the church today, are we today looking like an, an outpost of the kingdom of God with Christ as king? Or is the church today looking more like the rest of the world? The temple was magnificent. The religious leaders looked pristine, but, but Jesus and other gospel accounts called them whitewashed tombs. There was no fruit in fact, he saw right through him and says, no, you're, you're dead inside. What is the fruit of the Spirit that should be evident in our lives as those who are rooted in Christ? Ones who have been brought from death to life. What reveals that we belong to him? Is it ritual? Is it ceremony? Is it tradition? Is it the fact that we can perform certain religious acts? Paul would say in Galatians 5 would say the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, and peace, patience, and kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Jesus would say in John 14, the evidence that we belong to him is that we obey him. He says, if you, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. So though we don't have the same rituals and the same ceremonies of the Jewish people in the temple, we still today have our own rhythms we have our own customs of, of how, we, how we do things. And it, it shouldn't take you too long, really, to, to even learn the rhythm of the church, of, of how to learn even our customs and, and so you can fit in. Like, like today, it's, it's not too difficult. Come back next week, and it's going to be very similar. Here's when we stand, and here's when we uh, have our prayer of confession. So here's when you bow. Here's when we stand up and recite Scripture. Here's when we say, thanks be to God. Right? These are good things, but it's so easy for us and so quick for us to learn a rhythm, to look good on the outside. But at the same time, we can at the same time be looking good on the outside, but actually having nothing on the inside that's driving this. And so, so what do we do with this? It doesn't take too long for us to learn the outward look of any church, of the church here. But what Jesus is after is life, right? Fruitfulness. Love, obedience for who he is. And when Jesus looks at us, we, we do not manipulate him. We do not confuse him with our religious actions. When he examines us, he can see right down to the heart. He sees who we truly are. And so are we, are you, are you bearing fruit in your life that gives evidence that you're rooted in Christ, who is your life? And we'll come back to the fig tree at the end here today to see more what Christ calls us to be and to do. But this, this visual parable is setting up for what's about to unfold as Jesus enters into the temple grounds. And so let's keep reading. Look at verses 15 through 19. So as it says, they came to Jerusalem and he, he entered the temple. He began to, to drive out those who sold and those who, who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying, Is it not written, My house should be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it, and they were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. Jesus and his disciples here are now entering. They're approaching the temple grounds in Jerusalem. And to say that the, the, the temple grounds were a spectacular sight, even that is an understatement. The temple grounds were magnificent. The temple itself was spectacular. 
This was Herod's temple. They had begun construction on it about 20 B.C. You can see this artist rendering, this artist's conception of, of what the temple may have looked like. Jesus and his disciples, as they entered, we'll see even in a few chapters later there, the, the disciples are enamored by the, the, the enormity of this, the beauty of it, the, 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 the largeness of this complex. So they were they walked into this temple and they were seen the huge marble walls and the gold pillars and it was a magnificent sight to behold. Huge crowds have been flowing up the steps into the temple grounds. See, this is the inner temple right here. All the, all the, the, the journeyers of, of, of people, all the pilgrims who have been, who have been entering into this temple ground. Huge crowds have been flowing into what was called the, the court of the Gentiles, a place where all the, the non-Jewish people could be. This is the second picture you see of just the, the, the complex. Now, that, that complex size doesn't uh, show us really the enormity of it. This was, would cover about 35 acres. Right, about 35 acres right here. About A place could, could hold about 75,000 people in that entire complex. It was about the length of three football fields. It was about 250 yards wide. Like I said, over 75,000 plus people could fit within here and would during this Passover week. And so on, uh, you see the inner temple there in the middle there, and the court of the Gentiles is what surrounds that. That's where the, the, the nations, the people who are non-Jewish, could, could gather and, and meet. And so here in this courtyard, that's where the tables were set up. That's where the money changers were. This is where Jesus flipped over the tables. Now, why, why, why the need for money changers, you might ask? What's going on with the money changers? Well, Exodus 30 commanded that, that half shekel had to be given from every male worshiper over the age of 20. So this was a, a temple tax that had to be paid once a year during Passover. But foreign money couldn't be used because it had idolatrous images on, on the image, on the coins. So remember, people have traveled great lengths to come for, for Passover week here. Hundreds of thousands of people have journeyed from all over the region, great lengths to be at the temple this week. And so they had to have their money exchanged to pay the temple tax. What was taking place here was the religious leaders were, were beginning to charge a fee for this service of, of exchanging money. So they were lining their pockets, making a profit over this, this, this command from Exodus 30. Also lined up in this court of the Gentiles would have been stalls selling all kinds of livestock for the, for the temple sacrifices. Now the first century historian Josephus, he once recorded that over 255,000 lambs were once offered in one week during the week of Passover. This means that hundreds of thousands of people, if not millions of people, were, were here during the, these Passover weeks, year after year. This is what Jesus is encountering. On this sacred space, a place where God would dwell with his people in the Holy of Holies, where, where the sins of the people would be atoned for through sacrifice. On this courtyard surrounding the inner temple where the nations were to gather, where they would witness and were to witness the holiness and the magnificence of the God of Israel, everything had been turned into a circus. You have on this sacred place a combination of a county fair with the New York Stock Exchange. Instead of worship, there's shouting from the stalls for people to come buy their animals. Instead of reverence, there's pushiness and jostling for position. Instead of care for the poor, there's, there's abuse and they're taking advantage. Notice in verse 15 that Mark specifically mentions he turns over those that were, that were selling pigeons. Pigeons were animals that the poorest of the poor could afford. 
And so they're being taken advantage of, the poorest of the poor, for the sake of profit. Jesus enters this, this temple ground where the presence of God dwells with his people, and he sees extortion and bribery and greed and dishonesty. And he rightfully, he rightfully flew into a righteous rage for the sake of God's holy name. You see, it's here that we see this, that Jesus is the great high priest exercising rightful authority over his temple. As was said earlier, Israel was to be this light to the nations. Instead, here, they they became a hindrance. Rather than drawing people to the holiness of God and their need to repent, they took advantage and they were missing the beauty of Christ. God's temple, as we see Jesus say, was to be this house of prayer, a place of worship that would attract and and bless the nations. Jesus was quoting Isaiah 56-7, which was read at the beginning of our service this morning, when, when, when it says, These I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. And praise God for that. It wasn't to be a place of division, but of blessing. This is the work Christ is continuing to do today through his church. That we're called to be this light in the midst of darkness. A light drawing people from every language and every tribe and every tongue to come worship the great King of kings and great Lord of lords, the one who has changed us and is transforming us and making us more like him, the one who has given us life and eternal joy forever and ever. God is creating through Christ a new people whose identity is Christ, whose foundation is the gospel, and whose homeland is the kingdom of God, meaning that we are citizens of this heavenly kingdom. Jesus rightfully exercised authority over his temple. Today, he exercises authority, rightful authority over you and me, for we today are the temple of God whose spirit dwells within us. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 3 says, Do you not know that you are God's temple, writing to the church, and that God's spirit dwells in you? See, just as the temple here in Jerusalem was to be a a sacred spot where the presence of God would dwell with his people where others then would be drawn to his beauty. The nations would come and they would see the the splendor and the holiness of God. We now today, through faith in Christ and Christ alone, have the Spirit of God resting and dwelling within us. And so now we no longer need a a, a temple in Jerusalem where God's presence would would be found, but God's temple is now found throughout the entire world through believers who are changed and who are charged with the same mission to go showcase the glory and the beauty and the hope of Christ for all peoples. And so it must be asked, and we must examine ourselves, how are you drawing people to the hope of the gospel? How are you in your neighborhoods and in your places of work and in your homes being that light and blessing to all peoples? Is your life one that draws people to the hope of Christ, or is your life hindering others from seeing Jesus? A simple way of of this playing out according to Jesus in the Gospel of John, Jesus said very simply, by this all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. Do we have love for one another? Jesus said "This this is the clearest marker that you belong to me, that you're being that light, that you love one another. And not just a love for those who are easily lovable, but for those who are even unlovable. 
I'll go further here and, and ask in, in regard to this. Is your life marked by faith and freedom in Christ and, and forgiveness? These are the qualities and heart attitudes that Jesus is after in us and in his people. And we know this is because this is how this passage ends here when it's back at the fig tree. Look at verse 20 through 25. It says, as they, they passed by in the morning, so now it's the next day. They passed by in the morning. They saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered, and he said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. What's Jesus saying here? It almost seems disconnected from everything, but, but here's why it's not. He's looking at his disciples and he's saying after this, this whole encounter in the temple, as he's serving this whole encounter with what was taking place in the core of the Gentiles, how they were not being the light of the gospel, light of the hope to the nations. He's looking at his his disciples, and he's saying this, live as true disciples in the kingdom. This is what I'm after. This is what God's called you to be. This is what I'm calling you to be, he's saying. The visual parable of the fig tree, it bookends this encounter in the temple with Jesus and a money changer. See, Jesus' heart broke over Israel's rejection and blindness to who he was. He loved the people of Israel. In Luke's gospel, in Luke's gospel, it says as they were drawing near to the temple on that, that first day of his triumphal entry, he looks out over the city of Jerusalem and he weeps. They missed him, and his heart broke over it. He knew in just a few short days he'd be ultimately rejected and crucified, and yet, even then, he still loved them, longed for them to be what God had called them to be. And what should they be? What should we be? People of faith. People of prayer, people of forgiveness. See, the next morning they, they pass by this fig tree, and Peter remembers what had taken place the day before. And, and so Peter looks at that same fig tree, and he sees it's all withered down, it's dead all the way down to its roots. Again, this is sadly this, this picture of Israel. And Jesus looks at him and says, Here's what you're to be. Don't be showy. Don't be showy, but have no fruit. No, be a people of faith. Verse 22, you'd say, be a, have, have faith in God, an earth-shattering, earth-shaking faith, a faith that moves mountains. Do we believe God in that way? Do we have faith in a big God? Do we believe God can bring revival and regeneration to our city? Do we believe that God can overcome racial barriers and divides? Do we believe that through the power of God we can reach the unreached? Do we believe that through sacrificial giving that, and going and sending that we can equip and send and plant churches all over the world to reach more people with this hope of the gospel? Do our actions as believers reflect a faith in a big God or a small God? Or to be a people of prayer, I'll ask the same thing. Do our prayers reflect faith in a big God or in a small God? It was Andrew Murray who rightly said that Christ actually meant prayer to be the great power by which his church should do its work. And the neglect of prayer is the great reason the church has not greater power over the masses in Christian 
in heathen countries. The power of the church to truly bless rests on intercession, asking and receiving heavenly gifts to carry to men. We're to be a people of faith, earth-shattering, earth-shaking faith. We're to be a people of prayer, praying big things that reflect a, a faith in a big God. He also says that we're to be a forgiving people, just as our God is a forgiving God. We, we can forgive because we've been forgiven, right? We've been forgiven how? Through the atoning work of Jesus on the cross. The temple here was to be this house of prayer for all the nations, a place for people to come and find rest for their weary souls, to find spiritual food for their spiritual hunger. We now, as the temple of God, because of his spirit resting on and indwelling us through faith, are now to be that house of prayer for all nations. Meaning that we now, who've received grace, who've received mercy and forgiveness, freely extend that same grace and mercy and forgiveness to others. And by doing so, we're reflecting the goodness and the grace and the hope that's found in Christ. Are you a barren fig tree? Are we? Is our church? If we cannot forgive freely those who have wronged us, then we may be a, a leafy tree, but we're not bearing fruit. We can say we're a people of faith and look good on the outside, but if our lives do not reflect a faith in a big God, then we're not bearing fruit. If we're not praying and asking big things from a powerful God, then we're not bearing fruit. We're not being who God has called us to be. We're not being that light to the nations. Are we longing to see all peoples come to know Christ? What are we willing to sacrifice to see so we can see the name of Christ spread to the unreached? The billions of people in the world today who have not even heard the name of Jesus. You talk about big prayers that need to be prayed. Are we praying those? Are we asking for that? Are we saying we're willing to go? We're willing to send? We're willing to sacrifice to see the light, the hope of Christ go? I've always loved this quote by missionary C.T. Studd who said, some wish to live within the sound of a chapel bell. He says, I want to run a rescue shop within a yard of hell. As one author said in response to that quote, they said, that's a great place to plant a temple. That's a great place to plant a life with a sign that reads a Savior for all nations. Come on in, right? All are welcomed. None will be turned away. That's what Jesus has called us to be, a light for the nations, for the glory of God. So how will you take part in this mission? Let's pray. Father, forgive us when our faith does not reflect a faith in a big God. Forgive us for when our prayer life does not reflect faith in a big God. Forgive us when we fail to forgive, when we fail to forgive because we are not remembering and dwelling upon the gospel. We've forgotten that we have been cleansed. We have forgotten that we have, we have not not been made right before a holy God through the atoning work of Christ. So God, in, in this time here, we need to confess, we need to repent where we fall short. This is not a time here for us to look at Mark 11 and point fingers at the nation of Israel. This is a time for us to look and examine ourselves and say, where am I falling short? Where do I need this, this checkup? 
Where do I need to be uncomfortable but yet become healthy? And so God, help us. God, may we be a church that has faith that moves mountains. A prayer life that, that asks amazing, God-saturated, God-glorifying things for the sake of your name. God, may we be a people quick to forgive, quick to extend grace and mercy because we're so reminding ourselves, we're so resting in the gospel ourselves that it just oozes from us. God, as we're sent into a, a world that's dark, that is broken, God, may we be a light to the nations. May it begin in our homes. May it begin in our neighborhoods. May it begin in our city. May it begin then and spread to our nation and then to all peoples, God. Give us a, a big vision for who you are, a big vision for your mission of, of calling all people to come and know you. So God, in this time here, I want to just invite us here just to take a moment just to reflect. And I want to invite us as the church to confess where we need to confess, repent where we need to repent, and then, and then go. Go, as you've called us in Matthew 28. Go make disciples of all peoples, 